the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAWS platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome Ron Kagan, who is the CEO at the Detroit Zoological Society in the U.S. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Sabrina. Great to be with you. Absolutely a delight to have you on the podcast. So first things first, you know, some people, of course, know you. You've been in the zoo community, the zoo field for many, many years, and others might wonder who you are. So if you could start with a short introduction to yourself, that would be wonderful. Well, um, <laughs> you know, it's not normal that a scientist refers to himself or herself as a bunny hugger, but first and foremost, that's what I am. And I've loved animals since I was a little kid. Uh, perhaps the difference between me and many others is often you hear about people like that starting out as children, collecting lots of animals that they found in the backyard or in nearby forests. And that's not something I ever did. I didn't collect snakes. I didn't collect amphibians. I loved observing them in the wild, but I, I have never been a quote-unquote collector, and I think very often a lot of people in my profession actually started out that way and continue to be that way, um, and it's a, it's a different kind of approach, but I decided that um, when I went off to college, I ought to study the thing that I was most enamored with, so I studied zoology, uh, went to the University of Massachusetts in, in Amherst, and, uh, and then uh, kind of took a, uh, a side journey to Israel just as I was finishing my bachelor's degree and ended up living there for 10 years uh, doing my master's in, in uh, actually pheromones of desert mammals and then working for five years, not, not finishing, but working for five years on a PhD in environmental physiology uh, of desert animals. Uh, Israel was a good place to do work on desert animals. So I was doing work using thermotelemetry and uh, infrared thermography, sort of at the very beginning of those technologies. A little bit of diving physiology of small mammals as well. Uh, and simultaneously working for, starting to work for zoos, um, starting out as a zookeeper and, and then a head keeper and then a curator. Then I went on to the Dallas Zoo and Aquarium and was general curator there for a number of years. And, uh, and then and was recruited uh, to Detroit as the director uh, over 25 years ago and have been here uh, ever since. Wonderful, thank you so much. Can you talk a little bit about pheromones for those listening who don't know what pheromones are and some of the work related to it? 
Sure. Um, well, one of the things that really intrigued me, and I think intrigues a lot of other people, is how do animals communicate? And of course, humans generally communicate through uh, words, and, and also we all now understand that body language is incredibly important in terms of communication. Well, in, in the animal world, especially with respect to most mammals, uh, olfaction is far more important uh, than it is with humans. Now, of course, in humans, I think people know the perfume industry is a big deal. So obviously, olfaction is important in human communication, but uh, pheromones are released uh, usually through glands in different mammals, and they often have different signals. Sometimes they have signals that are different for different situations. Um, I think a lot of people know that many mammals in the wild actually mark territories using their, their various uh, skin glands. Um, and so we were kind of looking at uh, both through the, the chemistry of these materials and also through the behavior, <clears throat> exactly what was going on. And that led us to uh, a very interesting um, kind of deduction, which is that often nature does not waste things. It doesn't waste resources. And we realized that we were looking at some pheromones that were not just being used for communication, but also were used for other things, including thermoregulation. And that was not really well known in, in just about anything back then. And so, uh, that led us to not just looking at the chemical makeup and the specific chemical cues, but also uh, what else is going on with an organism and the, the nexus between behavior and physiology. Very, very interesting. We'll have to uh, look up some more of the information and uh, tie that to this podcast for people who are interested. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people trying to get into the zoo field and community, get a job as a keeper, or even have aspirations to become a zoo director. So can you talk a little bit about uh, some suggestions you perhaps have how to get into the field or what are some of the, you know, aspects to think about if you want to rise through the ranks? Well, I had no aspirations to be a zoo director. And in fact, in the very beginning, I didn't even think about working in a zoo. I, I had no idea what I would do learning zoology, but, uh, and, and certainly at that time, the kind of academic training that one got in zoology uh, really was not applied zoology. I'm, I'm very proud that as an organization, we helped uh, create the country, the, the US's first program a bachelor's program in applied zoo science, uh, working with the Michigan State University. Um, but in in uh, in those days, back in the '70s and early '80s, uh, you know, most people um, didn't really have degrees that who worked in zoos, at least not in the U.S. I think it was a bit more uh, academic, a bit more professional in Europe at the time, um, and. Uh, and so for me, you know, I just sort of fell into it, but uh, I would say for people now, it's become very, very competitive. Uh, most people in entry-level positions at accredited zoos, if they want to work in, in life sciences, and when I say zoos, I include aquariums, 
most people need to have at least a bachelor's degree in uh, in some related field, if not um, an advanced degree. Uh, so, you know, we all used to get a bit annoyed with parents when we were young and everybody would always say to us, now you, you got to stay in school and you got to do well in school. Well, it's actually good advice. So uh, it's best to try to get a blend of both applied experience and also academic experience, meaning you know, by all means, uh, go and volunteer uh, with a veterinarian or veteran or, or volunteer if possible for the zoo uh, when you're trying to get into the field and, and make sure that you uh, that you do well in school. Wonderful. Yes. Some advice or much of the advice we often get from our parents is actually quite good advice, but we don't always recognize it for what it is until maybe later. Right. Right. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about the uh, program that you helped fund at Michigan State University? And we'll definitely also put a link to that with this podcast for those uh, interested in listening to this. Well, um, we had already been pretty involved with the AZA's school in professional management of zoos and applied zoo biology. Uh, this was a program that was started, I think in the late seventies, I remember going through it in the early eighties. And I ultimately uh, became an instructor in that program that was done with AZA, the American uh, Association of Zoos and Aquariums uh, and and with North Carolina State University. Um, I became an instructor after I went through the course and then and then ultimately was on the Board of Regents and became the chair of the Board of Regents. So I was pretty familiar with how to help train zoo professionals who had uh, this sort of typical traditional academic background in zoology, meaning they'd learned anatomy and physiology and things like that, but you don't learn how to care for a giraffe when you're studying a, um, in, you know, a normal course in, in zoology. So we'd already had a lot of experience doing that for, for existing zoo professionals. And I took most of that kind of understanding and worked with the core traditional curriculum at Michigan State. And we developed a program uh, that was for people who wanted to go into the profession, not who were already in it. Um, and that's, that's been going now for many, many years. I'm, we're much less involved now than we were. And, and frankly, I'm not really sure how vibrant it is, but for probably two decades or more, uh, there were at least a hundred students every year. Um, I taught part of those classes. Um, uh, that's that's been uh, throughout my career one of the th things I've enjoyed. I think I've taught now at something like eighteen universities around the world. Um, but uh, some of our other staff also have taught in that program at MSU. Uh, and I think that many of those students went on to uh, become members of the staff of accredited zoos and aquariums around the country. Wonderful, that's just very inspirational. And it's so important that also the, our field, our community helps shape education and the curriculum 
of, you know, and not just like whole degrees, but also the already existing degrees to make them really fit, like you say, not really generalistic, but how do you actually care for, you know, animals in zoos and aquariums. So that's just a really inspirational to hear how you and the zoo have been instrumental in that. And can you talk a little bit about the Center for Zoo and Aquarium Animal Welfare and Ethics that you have at the zoo? Well, we, we have at times felt uh, frustrated that our profession has not been adequately focused on what we believe is a foundational piece of work, which is really, in, in a sense, the moral license to operate a zoo or aquarium. And that's the welfare and the ethical treatment of animals. Um, there's an enormous amount of focus on animal care. There's an enormous amount of focus on conservation and education and recreation and entertainment and all sorts of other things. But we, we really felt that, that first and foremost, we've got to have such a solid foundation, a moral solid foundation that the animals that we keep in captivity uh, and not everybody likes to use that word, but the reality is that's what it is. Um, you know, they're in our care, but they are captive. So we felt that, that this really needed much, much more attention. And when you look at any organization, you have to look at where they put their resources to know what's really important. So, you know, if an organization uh, is putting a lot of money into uh, how it treats its donors, then you know that that organization thinks that donors are really important. Well, we know, of course, that zoos and aquariums have always put a lot of resource into caring for the animals, but they were not putting enough resource and not just money and people, but also attention into fundamental things like the welfare of animals and whether the things that we're doing with animals are really ethical. You know, is it ethical to strike an animal in a zoo? And I, I'm quite sure that your listeners would immediately say, well, that's outrageous. Of course, it wouldn't be ethical. But we all know that in the old days, this is how elephants were managed this is often how animals that were in shows, in zoos, elf, uh, uh, chimpanzee shows, or many others were trained and, and controlled. So we, we basically said it is time to establish uh, a, a structure for this. And we created the center. We have five full-time employees and there are many key things that we, that we do in the center. Uh, um, uh, you know, we acquire uh, and make easily accessible all of the knowledge that's currently known because sometimes that becomes kind of an excuse. Well, we, we don't know whether animals are happy. How would we know? Well, actually there's a lot of science already, uh, but we also wanted to make sure it was easily accessible. So we have thousands of references that are easily accessible for free to anybody 
who comes to our uh, website. Uh, we also wanted to conduct our own welfare research. And of course, none of that was invasive research. We wanted to convene lots of important discussions. And we've had many symposia here, international convenings of, of experts from many disciplines, uh, not just the zoo and aquarium world, because frankly, uh, much of the knowledge was outside of the zoo and aquarium world in, in the academic community, the scientific community. Uh, we also wanted to do a lot of training, which we continue to do uh, every year people from many, many institutions from around the world. And we also wanted to recognize advances. Uh, and so we, we do periodic awards for individuals or institutions that are doing really important work in advancing animal welfare and ethics. Yes. And can you talk a little bit to what type of training people could get at uh, the center? Yeah, or perhaps online in these times of COVID? What type of courses may be available to them? We do a major workshop every year. Sometimes we do more than one. Uh, this year, you're, you're right, we were forced to do this virtually, which was kind of interesting because normally what we try to do is help professionals. So we're, we're generally not training people who are not already in the field. So we're training uh, zookeepers and curators, uh, veterinarians, people like that, um, of zoos and aquariums from around the world, in how to really experience the world of animals. Uh, because I think as humans, we tend to not think outside, I won't say outside the box, I will say outside our own skin. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, we, we have people put on knee pads just because we're kind and we don't want people to scrape their knees. Uh, we, put, we, we give people knee pads, we give them goggles, and then we put them inside the warthog, warthog yard. And we say, and, and we plant various things throughout the exhibit. Uh, you know, enrichment devices, all sorts of things like that. And we say, okay, now, you know, experience this, experience this world the way a warthog might, recognizing that your sense of smell is nowhere nearly as good as a warthog's and your vision might be better than a warthog's, which is why we put some goggles on you. Um, and we're, we're trying, aside from all of the academic training that we do in these workshops, we try to get people to think and feel and experience, to kind of sense the world the way the animals in a zoo or an aquarium might experience things. I think, as you know, Sabrina, in addition to that, we actually have a simulator here that we built well, over 20 years ago, well, we didn't build the simulator. We simply took existing technology that, that was very, very advanced, a motion-based cabin simulator that can move up to two Gs in any direction and surround sound and visuals and the whole thing. And you become different animals uh, and you experience the world the way different animals experience the world. So you become an owl and you're, you're 
trying to come back to your nest in a tree only to find that there's now a building there. And so what do you do? Um, humans have a very hard time putting themselves in the shoes of another human. The idea of becoming a different species, that's a tough one. And obviously there are still many limitations that we can't reproduce, but just trying to get people to stop for a minute and think about that the way they experience the world is not the same as the way the animals they care for experience the world. A zookeeper who goes in and cleans a stall of an animal uh, might find the scented smell of an ammonia cleaner not all that offensive when they're trying to disinfect a floor but for a mammal that has olfactory acuity that is a hundred times stronger than humans, imagine how much of an assault that is on the animal. So there are just so many different ways that we are um, unintentionally unsophisticated in, in experiencing the world of the animals that live in zoos. And we have to try harder. Yes, absolutely. And it's always, you know, of course, people will say, well, you know, and of course, this famous, you know, essay, you know, what it's like to be a bat, or can we ever know, uh, but all these, you know, often comments about, well, we can't ever be that, that animal, right? And that's absolutely true. Uh, but yep. at the same time, you can, like you say, try to really, you know, I remember uh, John Cole talking about this, this as well at some point and, you know, him talking about like, put yourself at this height and put yourself in this place and then see what does that look like, um, you know, perhaps from the perspective or from a shade or from a hide, you know, so all these, you know, trying, trying to get into uh, and the knee pads and the goggles is, is just uh, like you say, you're trying to be kind, but at the same time, try and put yourself in the shoes or the flippers or the, you know, the feet of, of any of the other animals and, and as you say, really thinking, you know, this is also why we have made so many changes in animal care practices, such as leaving some nesting materials to, you know, old nesting materials together with the new and fresh ones. So it doesn't all smell, you know, as something completely new and unrecognizable. We have made lots of different changes, but it takes a lot of effort and we certainly can do a lot more. And uh, you've talked about care and you've talked about welfare and can you talk a little bit to the differences as you see that between care and welfare sure um, but I, I want to back up for a second to what you just talked about because i think all of this really does influence changes in how we how we care for the animals but it's also how we design so we know that uh, for instance, animals like uh, polar bears, uh, their sense of smell is amazing. And it's very important to them. Uh, so if you put a polar bear in an environment where it can smell a lot of things, but it can't see because, for instance, it's in a pit, and we have to remember that in, in the old days, and unfortunately it's still true in some places, 
many enclosures uh, were developed, it was easier to contain animals by just digging a bunch of pits. And so the animals are in there because the walls become the, the, the containment. Well, that means the animals can smell, but they can't see what's around them. So when we built our polar bear facility, the Arctic Ring of Life, for the animals, we essentially built a gigantic mound. It's not a mountain, but it is a mound. It's elevated and they can see and smell and hear 360 degrees. And that was done that way for them, not for us. That was done so that they have an enriching life and one that is not frustrating. Uh, we're, we're giving them the ability to, to experience the world the way they normally would. Um, and this issue of doing everything we can to prevent animals from being frustrated, admittedly, it's usually unintentional on our part, but too often we're doing things which we're doing for a different reason, to make it a better visitor experience or to make it easier to for something or whatever, but we're, we're ending up frustrating animals and, and that is a recipe for disaster in terms of welfare. Uh, so I, I just wanted to make that point. Now, your, your question about animal care. This has been another uh, real challenge for the zoo profession and I, I think we're finally beyond it, but my goodness, it took a long time. Um, Everybody who works for, at least for an accredited zoo, and we all have to remember that the vast majority of zoos around the world are not accredited, but for accredited zoos, everybody who's working uh, really has fabulous intentions. Uh, usually they are uh, well-trained, and but the training is mostly in care, and animal care is about provisioning. It's about making sure that there's food, there's water, there's shelter, and all of these things, of course, are extremely important. But that is not the same as animal welfare and getting the profession to recognize and understand the distinction between the two has been surprisingly difficult. Uh, and I think it's because people knew that they were experts in animal care and they knew that what they wanted was what's best for the animals, but that they didn't realize that there are some fundamental things which really determine the welfare of any individual, and it's far more than the provisions. Uh, I just talked about, uh, for instance, uh, choice. So things like choice and control uh, you know, those things generally are not considered in the traditional care protocol. They're not really provisioning. But if animals don't have lots of choice and control, if they don't have what are basically relevant social and physical conditions, then their welfare is compromised. So you can, I mean, I, I say this and sometimes people think it's provocative. Frankly, I, I really don't. But you can easily put a human being in a prison, provide them with food and shelter and they can live a long life. Do they have good welfare? 
I, I think that would be hard to argue. And could you, do, could you put a, a human male and a human female in prison together? And would they live a long life? And might they even reproduce? The answer is yes. Uh, that still does not mean they would have good welfare. I think everyone who's been somewhat trapped during the pandemic realizes that it can be quite frustrating when you have a lot of restrictions. And if we don't deal with that, which isn't about provisioning, it's not about care, but if we don't deal with that, we are going to compromise welfare. So the welfare is really an output, not an input. The animal care, the provisioning is an input. Yes, so really, you know, the things that we provide for the animals as being care and the experiences of the animals, how they perceive it, that is the well-being, the welfare of the animals. And I think, you know, going back to your like polar bear examples, I when I worked in a zoo in Denmark many years ago, we had um, some seal meat for the for the bears, and uh, the bears were like standing up in you know in the enclosure, and they were like you know sniffing, putting their noses up in the air, and uh, they were just. Uh, you know, and, and one of the keepers told me, he's like, oh, we probably have seal meat in the kitchen. And it was really, you know, not near the polar bears, but they could smell that. So, you know, I think it highlighted to me again, what you talked about, how incredible their smell is. And of another occasion in another zoo where, um, you know, we had a problem with stereotyping in a polar bear, but it was really quite erratic or you know not on particular older older days and, and it wasn't until we actually you know observed his behavior and started to match it to things you know that were happening in the park that we ended up matching it to the opening and closing of a little hot dog stand you know again not anywhere near yeah. But um, but so it was not even and you know being very visual as we are we kind of look into the near vicinity when we are observing the animals but uh, we have to really remember you know like to look beyond that and to think beyond that um, because you know we would never <laughs> we didn't we didn't figure it out until you know we started looking way out uh, that that hot dog uh, stand you know came on our radar so. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, so that was really quite um, something. And then when you talked about design and the developments, you know, it brought to mind our the work that we have to do for the back of house areas. So you you know, obviously we talk about the importance of choices and control for animals, as you highlighted so well, and that we really do that in all areas where the animals uh, live or spend a lot of time, right? And those are also uh, the back of house uh, areas or the dens or all the other names that we have for it. Um, so, um, and, and as you say, with regards to choice to control, like how do we make that practical, right? Because they're really buzzwords, everybody uses them. And, um, but it's like, okay, so how do we make that real? And how do we make that in a well, way that the animals perceive that they have those choices and control, right? Well, there, these are very big challenges and there are a few things that are still seemingly impossible to overcome. Uh, but when you, when you go back to this issue of the design as an example, 
when I worked at the, at the Dallas Zoo back in the 80s, one of the things we did when we built the Gorilla Conservation Research Center there is we built the night house with uh, an entire wall that was, um, I'm not sure how to describe this for an international audience, but uh, it, it was essentially a, a removable wall so that even when the gorillas were in the night house, they had absolute access to fresh air. They could see what was outside. They could hear everything that was outside. They could smell everything that was outside. So, you know, there was still some screen mesh but the solid wall, the entire wall disappeared. And, and that was to make sure that they didn't just have sunlight or at night, uh, the, the night sky, uh, only when they were out in the exhibit yard. I, I think as zoos continue to improve more and more, these night houses really aren't night houses. They are very, temporary parts of the daily life of an animal. In other words, if an, a large outdoor area needs to be cleaned, animals might need to be moved inside for an hour or two. Uh, we need to be thinking about 24 hour experience of animals. There are still way too many animals that appear to have a natural environment uh, when the zoo is open to the public. So from 10 in the morning till five in the afternoon, boy, it sure looks like a natural environment. There's multi-acre facility, there's trees, grass, not, not that trees and grass are actually the natural environment for a lot of different animals because, you know, they're, they're not for, for many, uh, but in any event, it's naturalistic. But then if those animals are brought in and they have to spend the whole night in a building you know, we live, in, we live in buildings. Most other species don't. So that becomes a problem. Uh, you know, you, you can see that just uh, foundationally, there are so many things that are so artificial and we need to be addressing each and every one of those. Uh, one of the ones that I think is just frustratingly slow to, to be fully addressed by zoos around the world is climate. And it is ridiculous that a polar bear would live in a zoo that is tropical. Uh, it's frankly ridiculous that animals that live in the tropics are living in zoos that are in freezing climates. Now, you know, if it's a small animal, there are usually ways to still provide a reasonable um, uh, environment. But when you're talking about the large animals and putting them in entirely inappropriate climactic conditions so that you have to keep a monkey indoors for six months of the year or nine months of the year, I, I don't know how people can justify that on any level. And, and this is an area where zoos need to move much faster to have fewer species, to, to make sure that the species they have 
are appropriate for the conditions that they can provide. You know, I think a lot of people probably know that many years ago we decided to no longer keep elephants. Well, it didn't matter that we cared a great deal about the elephants. It didn't matter that we kept expanding their, their outdoor area and enhancing their indoor area. I mean, all of the things we were doing in, in human terms were significant enhancements, but for an elephant, frankly, they're meaningless and it only required common sense. It didn't really require a whole lot of science to, uh, to arrive at those conclusions. So we, we need a lot more common sense we need a lot more compassion. And while we continue to enhance the science, we cannot rely on the fact that we don't have proof of suffering in order to stop doing things. We should be assuming that if we don't have proof that things are great for individual animals, then we should be very worried and or we should not keep those types of animals. Yes, they're all really, really important points. And, and also, you know, frankly, something that we need a lot more discussion on. And because, of course, people might say, well, you know, animals could still have very good welfare. You know, they might still experience very good welfare, even if they're housed indoors. So the experience of the animal is not necessarily, you know, impaired by being housed indoors all the time because we have checked you know, the UV lighting and all those things, right? People might have a lot of these types of, um, yeah, arguments or ways of talking about it. But then I think, like you say, we still haven't really answered the fact whether, you know, we should be doing those types of things. Um, like, you know, also from a conservation perspective, so not only from a welfare perspective, but also from a conservation perspective, um, should we be housing you know, polar bears in hot climates where we have to have the air conditioning running all day or, you know, snow machines and everything to keep the animals at a comfortable levels. So uh, there's so many different points there uh, that certainly will need another podcast to unpack those. And um, so I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about some of the success stories of, you know, animal welfare and also the rescue of some of the animals that you have at the zoo? In the old days, there were a number of zoos and also circuses that would indiscriminately sell animals, surplus animals, off to individuals or companies. And those animals ended up sometimes in really terrible situations. Uh, and I think we feel a kind of responsibility, even though I don't think it was Detroit that was doing this. We felt as a zoo that we had a responsibility to try to help in some of those situations. So over the years, we literally have rescued thousands of animals from horrible conditions. Um, we've rescued a lion that was on, a, on guard duty in the basement of a crack house. Uh, we've uh, rescued three lions that were on guard duty at a, in a junkyard in the state of Kansas. Uh, we rescued a number of polar bears that were part of a Mexican circus that were on tour in Puerto Rico. And as a result of them being in Puerto Rico, 
the American government was able to take action. So we facilitated that with some partners uh, in the animal welfare community. And ultimately were able to then get uh, some of those polar bears to accredited zoos. One of them came here, uh, Berla, and she became quite a celebrity. She had been taken out of the wild as a cub out of Canada. As a cub, I think she might have been maybe three months old. She was sold to a, I believe it was an animal trainer in uh, Germany and then bounced around to a couple of others and then to a circus and ultimately to Mexico. We, uh, when we rescued all of these polar bears, uh, Berla came to us, to the Arctic Ring of Life, which uh, was, and I think maybe still is, the largest polar bear facility in the U.S. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about North America, it might be. In any event, uh, Berla, when she experienced the first winter here in snow, we were all in tears because we watched her rolling around in the snow. You know, she had been living for many years in uh, a cage, a traveling cage, often a hundred degrees hotter than what she should have been living in and somehow survived it. In any event, she came here, thrived, ultimately had a cub, Tallini, uh, which is kind of amazing and successfully raised the cub. So there have been many, many, many rescues that we've done over the years. Of course, when we do that, we use a lot of resource. This is a lot of money, a lot of time and talent. Um, and those resources then are less available for some of the conservation programs that we do. Um, but we think that a zoo should be a place that ultimately is kind of a sanctuary, um, a place where it's safe and, and where, you're, um, where you can live your life peacefully. But frankly, whether it's for people or for, for sort of, I would say humans or non-humans. So we've done a lot of those and worked with a lot of different partners. Uh, actually, just uh, last month, I went down to the state of Ohio with a U.S. marshal to confiscate some exotic animals from a, an animal dealer who was doing illegal things. Um, so these sorts of efforts continue uh, to this day. Wonderful. I mean, it's really inspiring to hear that. And it's so important also to put that work out there because a lot of times, you know, people who are not necessarily aware of what zoos and aquariums are doing for animals, uh, these are one of the things that, you know, we put effort in and we put uh, resources towards and also how we help in policy or how we help uh, governmental or local uh, agencies to, you know, care for animals that need it. And, and of course, you know, there, there's all kinds of discussions around the word sanctuary and what makes a true sanctuary. And, um, but when we're talking about, like you say, it's a, it's a place where, you know, both the animals and the people uh, can find, um, you know, tranquility, where they can find uh, rest and peace and quiet. Um, that sounds like, you know, a really good way to also talk about sanctuaries. Uh, without necessarily going into, you know, some of the more, um, yeah, I would say 
complicated debates that that we sometimes have uh, around this topic. So uh, I like that that idea, and it also points to how many zoos and aquariums today are the green spaces, the the beautiful places where people can you know come with their family or you know with their loved ones or by themselves, and where they can enjoy also you know admiring the vegetation and urban wildlife and all these these places uh, that, that zoos and aquariums are for people today in cities. So I, I really like that perspective. Yeah, and I, I hope that people understand that just because somebody calls themselves a sanctuary, I mean, I, I'm not encouraging people to be cynical, obviously, but there are plenty of places that are called that call themselves sanctuaries. They are not sanctuaries, they're roadside zoos or they're pseudo sanctuaries. Uh, certainly in the States, uh, there are now many accredited zoos that do rescue animals. They, they are providing sanctuary for animals that have been abused or confiscated. Um, and there are many incredible sanctuaries around the world uh, that do really wonderful work. I mean, it's, it's for them, it's full time. They're, they generally don't uh, spend time or energy on visitors. They don't spend time or energy on breeding. They spend all of their resources on, on rescue. Uh, but I always caution people uh, to scrutinize when, when something says it's a sanctuary to make sure that it legitimately is. Like they aren't allowing people to handle uh, baby lions and baby tigers and things like that because we know that that's exploitation. And we know that uh, people love animals. This is the biophilia effect that E.O. Wilson coined that term years ago. And so it can be very, very appealing, uh, but we have to be very careful not to be too selfish. Yes, absolutely. And there's two key points here, like providing sanctuary, like you talked about. So getting animals out of really bad situations uh, for them and providing that sanctuary for them where they can have a good life, a flourishing life. And also, like you mentioned, you know, there's zoos and there are zoos on a sliding scale from really bad roadside zoos to very good uh, accredited zoos. And like that, there was also sliding scales on aquariums and sanctuaries. And like you say, there are so many really wonderful sanctuaries in the world for donkeys and primates and all kinds of other beautiful creatures. And so, yeah, but to really, you know, do some of the research. And I think Susan Aquariums are, are helping in that by, you know, putting forward their accreditation, helping, you know, some guidelines to like choose where you go to visit uh, to help people decide on, uh, on the facilities that they go to. But uh, yeah, absolutely making sure that, um, that we are, you know, putting the money into the facilities that really are trying to make a, a difference for the animals uh, in their care. And um, earlier you spoke about animal welfare and the importance to, you know, the experience, really highlighting the experience of animals. And uh, when I was working as the director of animal welfare with the with WASA, the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, that was one of the things that I really you know, felt was very important to focus on is that we often talk about welfare as as a as a means. So we talk, or you know, conservation gets a lot of 
Um, of course, you know, conservation is very important, like many of the other goals, but uh, they're not greater goals. Um, and uh, animal welfare, and if they are greater goals, then animal welfare is a greater goal. And it's actually a, a goal in itself, right? It's a, it's a, a animal welfare is um, an end in itself. Because of course, right. animals, you know, is, is, uh, really you know they're like well this is you know i my well-being my experience and uh, i would love to hear you talk about you know you've written uh, a number of art scientific articles including you know the universal framework for zoos uh, can you talk a little bit about what that framework is about animal welfare and the components that you mentioned in it yeah so th this is really such a great point i think sometimes uh, in the zoo and aquarium world, we, we say that conservation is, is the reason for our existence. And I, I am a little unsure about whether we should be framing it that way uh, for the same reason that, that you've just articulated. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very hollow endeavor if by doing that kind of conservation work, there are individual animals that are potentially suffering. So first and foremost, uh, the individual animals that we directly influence, and that isn't just the ones that live in zoos and aquariums, it's also the ones that we might be releasing in conservation release programs. The welfare of those individuals actually should come first and foremost. Uh, of course, we want to be successful at conservation, but it is really, really important uh, to make sure that, that their situation, their individual situation is that they are thriving. Now, when we developed the, the framework, we basically said, look, there, there are two things to really uh, take into consideration. The first is, is uh, primarily about inputs, which is, what is the institutional philosophy? What are all of its policies? What are its resources that it's committing? Uh, the staffing, you know, there's still very, very few zoos that have trained people like yourself, trained animal welfare experts on staff. Yet we have lots of curators, we have conservation officers. That doesn't seem right. Um, there should be very, significant expertise in animal welfare, not just with an individual or a few individuals. As I mentioned, we have five in our department, but we train all of our uh, staff, all of our life sciences staff. Uh, so I think that uh, first our framework is there should be documents that clearly demonstrate what the investment is, what the, the programmatic structure is, how the assessments are regularly done to make sure that the welfare of each and every animal is evaluated on a, on a periodic basis. And that, that there are the necessary, as I said, the necessary resources and structure in place. Um, and, and then secondly, is all of the hard work that goes into the evaluation uh, and the interpretation of all of this. So uh, without a framework, it's kind of uh, potentially hit or miss as to whether or not we're 
clear about what the welfare status is of the individual animals that live uh, in our facilities. And I, I just want to help your audience um, understand that uh, we, we can't be doing this blindly. We, we have to know, we have to know the answers. Uh, and the only way to do that is to have the expertise, the training, the expertise, and to evaluate it and not, not to just hope that everything is fine. Absolutely. Yeah. Hoping that everything is fine is not the approach uh, we want to have. And again, you know, importance, like you talked about the care and the welfare and the training and really you know, making sure that we very regularly, obviously every day we watch the animals, we look at them, but also having the documentation that you can show that, you know, the animals uh, have, that you have evidence, right? If people are looking for it. And I often say, you know, if I would be an inspector at a zoo, I would be a lot more interested in looking at that data, right? That has been accumulated over that year yeah. or two years. Uh, and seeing that this zoo, you know, that they can prove that their animals in their care, everybody is about, you know, over the green line of 80% or whatever we would set as a criteria, seeing that the animals are doing well, having optimal welfare most of the time, that would be uh, so much more interesting, I think, than seeing an enrichment or a training session or something else, right? I think that should be mandatory. Well, because like, yeah, you're, hey, you don't want to hope for it. You want to have evidence for it. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, you know, you can measure or assess. Me measuring is complicated, but you can assess yes. uh, something in a particular day. It's really good or it's really bad. But, but looking at that track record is extremely important. People may, may not think about it this way, but this is how we think about it. Welfare is about the the status of the individual. It's about whether an individual experiences and thinks about itself. It isn't up to us to decide that, that someone else, that they have great welfare. You have to decide that for yourself. So it's not easy for us since we don't speak gazelle, uh, for the gazelle to, to let us know. We, we have to be smart enough to be able to figure this out with with behavioral evaluations and, and hormonal assays and things like that. But, but welfare talks about the individual. Conservation is actually the welfare of species. And if you think about this in Darwinian evolution terms, then you realize that uh, in nature, nature doesn't necessarily care about the individual. Uh, it cares about the fitness of a population or an entire species. But a zoo is an artificial environment that humans have created. And by doing that, we assume the moral responsibility for the animals. That's why we can't always simply say, well, animals don't have it so easy in the wild, which is true, they don't. Um, and therefore, it's the same in a zoo, so it's not so bad. Well, <clears throat> all of that might be correct. Correct, except that we've decided to put these animals in captivity, not necessarily taking them from the wild, because hopefully people realize these days the vast, vast majority of animals in zoos and aquariums are bred in zoos and aquariums. They're not taken out of the wild. But still, they, you know, they would not 
normally live there. Yes, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we're touching on a lot of different uh, subjects today and also subjects that I don't think necessarily get enough um, light sh uh, shown on them or not enough attention for discussion or topics that make us quite uncomfortable or we are, you know, not necessarily in agreement with whatever it might be. But I think it's so important to bring up all these topics that you're bringing up and to, you know, make space for that and to discuss it and to really look at ourselves and also be very autocritical, right? That is, it shouldn't be uh, people who don't care for animals or haven't cared for animals and don't have necessarily the whole scientific and practical backup that we, uh, that very good Susan Aquarians have, we should be able to look at ourselves and say, well, what about this? Is this really as good as it can be? Or should we be doing this? Or how can we do that differently? Um, because that makes us um, very, a lot more credible. And, uh, and sometimes it is hard uh, to look at ourselves. But I think also in these podcasts or in our webinars or anywhere else on the pod platform, pause platform, we have a lot of different people with different visions, different viewpoints. And it's exactly the point of having space for that and also discussing the things that are not necessarily easy or uh, we don't have the answers to. But as you say, the importance of over-attributing, of assuming that uh, maybe the things are not well or that we need to be doing better until we have, it's up, up to us, right? Uh, the burden of proof is up for us to, to um, look at, you know, should we be, do we have the, the data or do we have common sense uh, to make, make decisions that are in the best interest of the individual? So I'm really glad that we're having all these discussions um, and that there is space for that. Yep, quite right. Yeah. And so this, this flows very nicely into my next question, which is, can you talk a little bit about your contribution to the book, Increasing Legal Rights for Zoo Animals, Justice on the Ark? Well, I, <clears throat> I primarily, uh, in, in that book, um, I, my role in that book, because I was just one of many chapters, uh, was really to sort of uh, compare and contrast sanctuaries and zoos and make the case that zoos actually should be sanctuaries, uh, and demonstrably so. Um, I, I, I have always felt a little bit uncomfortable about how, at least in the States, the law uh, treats situations like zoos um, and, and even beyond that. So the fact that exotic animals, um, many of which are extremely endangered, are considered property and, in, and indeed in, in many cases apparently have monetary value, I think is very, very unfortunate. And, and I think that in the States, the fundamental laws need to change because these are natural treasures of, of not just humanity, but of the world. And, and I don't think that we, I think the issue is that we don't have a whole bunch of rights that we're apparently exercising that dramatically affect uh, other animals. But that wasn't the main part of what I was contributing to. I was trying to make the point that 
there is a very important role for zoos to play if we, uh, we, we don't have to abandon the idea that it, it's a place of, of joy for humans to experience the world of nature, but, but that we need to make sure that they really are sanctuaries, uh, that the animals that are living in zoos are thriving. And if they're not thriving, then they shouldn't be either in, in our zoo or perhaps they shouldn't be in another zoo. It just kind of depends on, on uh, what it is that those animals need in order to thrive. Yes, and I think it's very interesting and important also when we talk about uh, rights for animals or, and now I'm kind of leaving out the legal one uh, because also it's not my domain, um, but when we're just thinking about rights as in what do you deserve? What are, you know, what are the rights that you have as, especially as you say, we have put animals in captivity. They are in our facilities. We want to do the best and we are committed um, to wanting to care for them uh, in the best way possible. And what, again, I'm, I'm very much always focusing also on the practicality of it. Um, also because policy and, and law and so on is not necessarily my background. And, and, and again, why it's so important to work together with people who have a background and who can advance the policy and, and regulation sides. Uh, but really, you know, when we think about the practical sides of rights, then what are the rights of the animals in our care, right? And, um, and, and really looking at, so what are the things that we ought to be doing for them? Um, and really going beyond just mitigating poor welfare or, or suboptimal welfare to really the flourishing or the thriving um, or the optimal welfare, uh, whatever words you're most comfortable using. Uh, and I think those those things are so important to think about. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely put a link also again to this book if people uh, want to read more uh, your chapter or, or the whole book in itself. Well, you know, Sabrina, one of the things that I, I view this, I, I sort of think about what's the track record for humans with human rights. And it's pretty sad. Uh, so to me, the argument is not about animal rights. The ar argument is about human responsibility and humans should always aspire to be responsible. I, I am not defining exactly what that means because obviously I don't know, and I don't know that it's the same for every culture or for every individual, but at least the aspiration and the effort ought to be that we ought to try to be responsible. And that includes try to be responsible with how we interact with others with other people, with other animals. And so whether legally somebody has additional rights or not, I think we have to act in the best possible way of humankind. And, and you know, that is a challenge. Yes, absolutely. Also because for many countries, for many animals, there are not necessarily any uh, rights, any protection, any regulation. So it's, you know, and, and those things can take a lot of time and take a long time to be established. So in the meantime, like you say, to be responsible, 
uh, to take, you know, this very, very serious, our job in caring for animals. And uh, the other word that I recently, you know, heard somebody talk about was uh, to be responsible, uh, like putting it, pulling it apart. And I, I really loved that addition to how we, you know, how we are able to respond, you know, with the feedback that we get from the animals through observations, through interacting with them in, you know, how are they experiencing this and how can we refine, modify our care uh, to make their experiences even better. So yes, that word responsible and being response able uh, is just uh, really um, so important in our jobs. Yeah, and that's an interesting, interesting perspective. And I think we also have to remember that, again, you know, we do, we should be doing our best. We should always be doing our best. Uh, animals obviously will behave the way they behave. When you, when you watch animals in the wild, you don't necessarily see what we would call responsible behavior. I mean, I, I am always challenged when I take people to, into the wild, especially to Africa, and they're always excited to see a lion kill. And then they see, and then they actually see what happens. And, the, and they see a lion kill another lion, or they see a lion, you know, eating some other animal alive without even trying to kill it. it you know, the, the difference is that we know what we're doing and we ought to try to do the best we can. Uh, we can't impose a human paradigm onto the, onto the animal world, onto the non-human animal world. Uh, but for our part, we ought to be doing the best we can. Absolutely. So, you know, as we're talking about all kinds of different topics, uh, some, you know, very positive and light and, you know, outcomes that have been achieved and things that we have you know, differences that you and the zoo have made and some maybe more difficult about, you know, how, what are, what are, what are our responsibilities to animals? You know, in what way should we be caring for them? Uh, should they have uh, legal rights? And if so, what do they look like for the particular animals? And then of course, there's also this a very important subject of surplus animals. And again, a topic that doesn't necessarily get the attention that it deserves. And please, can you talk to us a little bit more about uh, the management of surplus animals? Well, I mean, uh, I'm not an expert on, on uh, circus. So I, I certainly have- Oh, sorry, have, sorry, Ron. I, um, I, uh, about um, the management of surplus, the surplus animals. Oh, surplus, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you correctly. Um, okay, so I think it's important to make sure that we don't end up in a situation where there are where there are more animals than there are responsible places that can care for them. So there are usually several ways to to try to cope with that. Now there there are some zoos that have adopted a policy where they basically will allow breeding. And, and then, uh, you know, they'll, they'll cull uh, the animals that are produced. And then there are others like us that utilize birth control quite a bit. And we try to prevent um, 
breeding when we don't think that there is the need for offspring or there, there are places for the offspring. Uh, this is a, a, a difficult debate. Uh, there are people that believe uh, that depriving animals of producing offspring is an ethical issue. Um, I'm not sure that I've ever felt that was a very compelling argument, but I, I understand that colleagues can disagree. Um, and I, again, I don't want to be too anthropomorphic, but I think uh, a human that does not have children does not necessarily suffer. Uh, so to make the argument that if we don't have certain animals uh, breed, that they are, they're going to suffer, it, and that that is somehow worse than taking a young animal and killing it. Um, you know, again, we, we've taken a, a particular position on this and, and our position is that we don't cull and, and we certainly don't use incorrect names. I mean, it's not euthanasia, it's culling. Uh, so we, we prefer either to spay or neuter or we, we use birth control in situations like that. Yes, absolutely. Such an important topic uh, that needs a lot more discussion and a lot more solution-based approaches when it comes to surplus animals. So we're coming almost to the end of the podcast. And of course, we would like to hear, you know, what are some of the current challenges of zoos, animal welfare, and including the path of good care to great welfare at some of your work? Well, I, I, I mean, I often think about what's the future likely to be. And of course, I don't know. I hope that there'll be more and more of a focus on quality, not quantity. It will get away from the, the sort of collection mentality that uh, sort of, it, it, it connects how many different types of animals you have defines how good you are of a zoo. And I, I just feel like that is an antiquated way of thinking about it. So my hope is that we will see uh, zoos really expand both physically the, the resources they provide to most species. I mean, obviously really small things like amphibians and reptiles are not to the best of our knowledge, not that difficult to provide reasonable space and complexity in their physical and social environment, but we're still learning. Uh, and that there will be a lot of attention to making species appropriate to the climate uh, where a particular zoo is, uh, and that there really is a focus on doing everything we can to give as much agency, as much choice and control uh, to the animals as is realistically possible. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And also for including, you know, some of the future steps for zoos and aquariums to look forward to. And of course, in conclusion, because we all love animal stories, uh, we would love to end on a wonderful, you know, positive story of something that you or you and your team have uh, meant for this particular animal. Oh boy. You know, um, we, we have, all of us here have such a passion 
for for the natural world. And I, I think it probably would surprise people to know that um, I get as much joy out of visiting with our two miniature Sicilian donkeys um, who in and of themselves were, were uh, rescued from difficult situations as I do um, watching our giraffe or our wolves or our incredible uh, penguins. Um, you know, it, it, we, we tend to be what, what, what are called speciesists and it's too bad. We, we tend to think, you know, we get all uh, excited about giant pandas and some of the, the other animals that visually are so unique, but the reality is um, your own dog, your own cat, um, the, the bird outside, the donkey in, on a farm, these are all animals that we fall in love with and, and enrich our lives so much. And uh, throughout my career, there have been so many like that. I've tried my best with most animals not to, if they're not domestic, to not have them depend on me so that they can be themselves and not simply my pet. Uh, and that is difficult for those of us that work in this field. Wonderful, thank you so much, Ron, for taking us through, you know, of course, suggestions, how you got into this career to, you know, the importance of looking at pheromones, olfaction, thermal regulations, and all these wonderful things that you learned from there in your, you know, very long career uh, caring for animals and being a voice for animals and the importance of zoos and aquariums being instrumental in shaping education and of course the welfare center and ethics center that you have at the zoo that has full-time employees and the importance of focusing and training people for you know these really important jobs to understand the experiences of animals you know to go from good care to great welfare and really you know embedding in that the importance of giving as much choice and control so animals can exert their agency. And of course, you know, beautiful stories about polar bears and miniature donkeys and everybody else that is in your care and with the team at the Detroit Zoo. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you.